So Psalm 33, I've entitled this message, Who's the Boss? If you're of a certain age, you know where this comes from. Uh, There was one of my favorite TV shows growing up. I was definitely a child of the 80s. So from 1984 to 1992, there was a show called Who's the Boss? And on that show, you know, there was this Tony who was the live-in housekeeper. And then there was the, the, the divorced woman who was the head of the household, Angela. She was an ad exec. And, and so the, the title, Who's the Boss, was kind of a play on, well, who's the boss? Is Angela the boss? Is Tony the boss? How does this work? And, and so I enjoyed that show. Um, but and you kind of always week to week wondered, well, who's going to take charge? Who's going to be in the lead? And, and unfortunately for us, that's often how our relationship with the Lord is. Often our relationship with the Lord is, is who's the boss. And we know from a theological level, we understand you're attending first service on a Sunday morning. You know that the answer is the Lord's the boss. But if you're anything like me, you often don't live that way. You and I act like we're the boss. You and I act like we're the ones in control. And, but, but what we want to see and be reminded of this morning is that biblical truth that God's the boss. And that's actually a good thing. Because we may come to this point where we say, okay, God's the boss begrudgingly but I just don't trust him. I just don't know that he really knows what he's doing. And I think if I had more say in kind of how this company is run, things would be different. They would be different, but they'd be worse. (laughs) And so we want to remind ourselves of this truth that the Lord's the boss and that's a good thing. So let's jump into Psalm 33 this morning. I'll read through it and then we'll see what the Lord might speak to us through it. Psalm 33 It's titled in the New King James, The Sovereignty of the Lord in Creation and History. And you'll notice that there's no author. So we don't know who the author of this psalm is, but we can trust that the Holy Spirit inspired this human author, whoever he might have been. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to get to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from the place of his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them from a life in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in 
you. All right, so let's just jump in right here to verse 1. Okay, and notice we read, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you understand that this command to rejoice is one of the most common commands in the Bible. It's all through the Psalms. It's all through the New Testament, this command to rejoice. And that's very interesting. It's not a suggestion. It's not saying, well, maybe if you feel like it, it's a command. Rejoice in the Lord. This is how it begins. And it needs to be commanded because so much of this world causes us to despair. Right? This world is built on despair. The scriptures tell us that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. And if you've ever thought about what it means to be discouraged, it means to take away your courage. And that's what Satan wants to do. Satan wants to discourage us. He wants us to be weak and fearful. He wants us to be tired people who get on the internet and look at the news and says, yep, just as I thought, everything is bad. Everything's burning up. Everything's going down. And so it's important for us to turn off the internet, to set down our phones, and to instead come to the Lord and to rejoice. So the Lord wants us to rejoice. Now, if we spend all of our time looking at sin and death and destruction, yes, we're going to be discouraged and we're not going to find a reason to rejoice. But what do we see here? Rejoice in the Lord. So the fact for us is we're not to rejoice in the circumstances of our world, the circumstances of this life, the circumstances of or even ourselves. We're to rejoice in the Lord. That's key. So turn from CNN and turn to the Lord. That, that, that's what we are commanded to do. Now, what's interesting is I was convicted because you guys know me, the ones who do know me, and you know that I'm a tendency toward despair and cynicism and all of those negative things, and it's probably going to turn out poorly and all of that. And so immediately as I came to put together this study, I'm just like, just cut to the heart immediately. And so they began some soul searching as I was working through the scripture. Okay, the Lord keeps saying this rejoice thing. What's going on here? And what was, what was put on my heart is that rejoicing in the Lord is this. It's actually an act of faith. Rejoicing in the Lord is an act of faith. It is believing that the Lord is going to do what he said he'll do. It's believing that the Lord is going to bring things together for the good just as he said he is. It's believing that the Lord is going to bring a new heaven and a new earth just like he's promised to. So here's the thing why it's an act of faith. Because no matter how things look right now, no matter how things feel right now, no matter what we're encountering right now, the Lord's still going to do what he's going to do. That's why it's an act of faith. So that's why Paul can say, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Yeah, the present circumstances are bad. When Paul was in the Mamertine prison, awaiting execution at the hands of the Romans' authority, Paul wasn't like, I'm too blessed to be stressed. Okay, that wasn't the attitude. He didn't have a bunch of pictures from Mardell hanging in his prison. He didn't have any of that. But he was sorrowful in that situation, but he knew that he'd run his race. He knew that there was a crown set for him. He knew that the moment he ended this life, he was going to open his eyes in heaven. He knew that. And so he could rejoice in the midst of that. Now, to kind of to think about this a little bit more, the, the passage that came to my mind is kind of unusual for rejoicing. But would you turn with me to Daniel for just a moment? Daniel chapter 3. Let's look for that. I believe it's after Ezekiel. All right. So Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to look at verses 8 through 18. And this is... This is a pretty familiar passage to us. If you ever, you know, spent a Sunday in children's church, it's likely that you came across this story. The fiery furnace, it's, it's a classic. 
Okay, so in Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 8, to catch you up, Daniel apparently was away on Babylonian business, and so his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were in town, and Nebuchadnezzar had gotten the bright idea of, what, you know, why don't I make this huge statue of gold, and everybody can bow down to it. We'll have the band play, you know, we'll kind of put on the Spotify playlist, and then everybody's going to bow down to it, it's going to be awesome. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, that's not how we do life. So they did not bow down to this idol. And wouldn't you know, because they were powerful guys in the government, they got ratted out. Okay, And so they were brought before the king. So let's pick up the story here in Daniel 3, starting in verse 8. It says, Therefore, at a certain time, the Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke to King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. said, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony, with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace and there are certain jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of babylon shadrach meshach and abednego these men o king have not paid due regard to you they do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up now just think about that for just a minute what an amazing testimony these guys have right that these unbelievers say hey look at these guys they don't serve your gods they don't worship their image the image that you set up so beautiful beautiful testimony and this is a reminder for us that when we're obedient to the Lord, our enemies will accuse us of things that actually are, are good. <laughs> like, oh man, they don't do things life that way, the way that we do. Now, it says the Nebuchadnezzar, notice how he responds, in rage and fury, because his pride is offended. He gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and worship the gold image which I have set up? Okay, and now Nebuchadnezzar is going to give him a second chance. He says, Now, if you're ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image that I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And so then the, the guys have this opportunity, right? What are they going to do? They're going to be, oh, I just can't believe this. And I can't believe God will put us in this position and what's going to happen. But notice how they answer. And I believe that this is this key to rejoicing. The key to rejoicing is trusting in the Lord no matter what, no matter what circumstance. So that's what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They said, if, if that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I think these guys are showing the key to rejoicing. They're saying, essentially, we're going to serve God and maybe God's going to deliver us because he's perfectly able to deliver us. But if he doesn't deliver us, guess what? We're still not serving you. And so that's true rejoicing. That's true. That's the faith that says, no matter if this situation turns out the way I want it to, or it turns out the way I don't want it to, whether God delivers me from this disease or he uses it to take me home, whatever he does, I'm going to trust him. I think that's the key to rejoicing. And so as I look at these guys, because the way that I read verses 16 through 18, I, I hear these guys, you know, boldly. 
I, I, I see them almost with a smile on their face because the fact that they say, we have no need to answer you in this matter, basically is saying to the king, we respect you, but you're not our boss ultimately. The Lord is our boss. So that's the key. When we realize like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that God's our boss, that no matter what man may do to him, he doesn't have the ultimate say, then all of a sudden we can rejoice because we can rejoice in a good boss who's our good father. Now, rejoicing the Lord says that we trust God and that he is good, whether he delivers us through the fiery furnace or we're consumed by the flames. Because if you study Christian history, you study the Bible, you realize it's happened both ways. You see that sometimes God miraculously delivers people and sometimes they're fed to the lions. Sometimes they're let out of jail. Other times they're executed. Sometimes they escape. Other times they're burned at the stake. But either way, God is who he is. All right, let's turn back to Psalm 33, verse 1. Continue on there. It says, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Okay, so the focus here for you and I, if we go around to unbelievers and say, hey, just rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. Well, they don't have the ability to do that because they're not believers. So the command here from the psalmist is for believers to rejoice in the Lord. And so, O you righteous, in the Old Testament sense, is really speaking about those who walk in obedience to the Lord. Right? Oh, you righteous, it's you who are obedient to the Lord, who, you who are in right standing with the Lord, you who want to do what the Lord wants you to do. And I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a great example of that. Now, it's an often overlooked fact. I want to talk about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for just a moment. We don't talk about this in church much, but if you'll notice in that story in Daniel, the, their boss is the king of the eunuchs or the, the overseer of the eunuchs, which means when Daniel and the guys were taken, they were castrated. I just want you to think about that for just a minute, because imagine that you're a young man taken to this foreign land and that's done to you by this foreign emissary. And I mean, a lot of people would just like, I'm done with this life. I'm just turned inward. They had something horrific happen to them. And then yet, what do they choose to do? I'm going to serve God in the midst of this. I'm still going to be someone. So, so there's no thing in our life that's so far beyond so difficult, so hard that the spirit of God can't help us to, to overcome that, to help us to serve in the midst of that. So I, I think that's an important to think about because as we think about rejoicing the Lord, oh, you righteous, again, it's, it's about obedience. And here's what I would say. Obedience and rejoicing are directly proportional. Obedience and rejoicing are directly proportional. The reason why I have such a hard time rejoicing is because I'm so disobedient. And if, if, again, this is probably a situation that you find yourself in. But when you find yourself walking in obedience, when you say, I'm just going to serve the Lord no matter what and see what happens, then what's going to happen is as your obedience rises, your rejoicing will rise. So, so if you say today, is like, I, I'm, I'm taking this seriously. I'm taking the scripture seriously. I want to rejoice more. Obey more. Just obey the Lord more and you'll find that you will rejoice. Now, this New, under, New Testament understanding for us as New Testament believers, when it says, oh, you righteous, remember that as a New Testament believer, you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, so you are the righteous of God. You're righteous in Jesus Christ. Every born-again believer is righteous. You're perfectly righteous in God's sight. Well, guess what? That's a reason for you and I to rejoice. The fact that you and I are perfectly righteous in the sight of God is a, is a reason to rejoice. Because if you spend enough time around yourself, you realize that in your flesh, you're not very righteous. 
that you don't do things right. And, and if you turn inward, you begin to despair, okay? But then realize that, yes, you and I are unrighteous in ourselves, but in Christ, we're perfectly righteous. And so that's another reason to rejoice. This is something to rejoice in. We can rejoice in the fact that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. That if we were to get kind of a monthly statement of our spiritual bank account, we would see perfectly filled, right? Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness has been credited to our account. You know, oftentimes when it comes to physical money, we look at that bank account like, oh, there's a lot more red than I would like there to be. But then when it comes to our spiritual bank account, it's perfectly full. Christ is our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. Hebrews 10.14 tells us, For by one offering, Christ has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So you're perfectly righteous in Christ. That's a reason to rejoice. Now, continuing on in Psalm 33, 1, we're told that for praise from the upright is beautiful. In other words, praise is beautiful. Praising the Lord is beautiful. It's a a beautiful thing. That word beautiful actually means fitting or appropriate or as it should be. If you've, you've probably watched a movie and you're watching this movie and then the ending is just right. The ending is like, yes. You've also watched the other movies. You're like, this ending's horrible. I can't believe this. But you've watched an ending to a movie and you're like, that just fits. Okay, just everything comes together. It's as it should be. That's what it is when we praise the Lord. It's beautiful. It's fitting. It's appropriate. It's life as it should be. When you and I get to heaven and we're praising the Lord, you know, without our sinful natures and our resurrected bodies, and then we're going to just be like, this is right. This is how it should be. But we don't have to wait for heaven. We can, we can uh, praise him right now. And it's important to understand with this praise that you and I may not be able to play an instrument or maybe we're not able to create art or do any of those things, but you can produce beautiful praise. No matter what your voice sounds like, okay? No matter how skilled you are, if you say, I'm gonna rejoice in the Lord because of who he is, then that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Let's continue on to verses two through three now, or two and three. It says, praise the Lord with the harp, make melody to him with an instrument of 10 strings. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. Okay, so just a few takeaways here when it comes to worship, because it's interesting. There's, you know, I don't know why worship uh, or praise through song has become so controversial in so many ways. And this is how it's done. And this is how it's done. Let me just give you a few principles here. Number one, you, it is suitable to use instruments to praise the Lord. Okay. There's some, there's some different, uh, you know, denominations who say, oh, you can't use instruments because of this and that. And I've seen the text that they use and that's not what the text means. Okay. So we see clearly that if you want to use an instrument to praise the Lord, you can do it. You can use an instrument of 10 strings. I mean, if you can use a kazoo, please just not around me. Uh, but if you want to worship the Lord with a kazoo, you know, you do that privately, you know, go into your closet <laughs> and do that. Um, but another thing to see here, it's a blessing to sing new songs to him, right? Sing to him a new song. That word new can actually be translated fresh, a fresh song. Sometimes in the church exists this idea that if it's not a hymn, it ain't of him. Right. It's if it's not a hymn, then God can't. But you just got to back up and understand a little bit about logic. There was a time when those hymns were new. (laughs) 
There was a time when the hymns were the new songs. And so there's no time in human history where we say, oh, that's, that's when they did songs right. Okay? Songs of any age, there are some that are good and there's some that are bad. There's some that are theologically accurate. There's some that are not. There's some that are God-centered. There's some that are man-centered. And so what we need to do is realize new songs are good, but with every song, old or new, we want to judge its theological content. We want to say, is this song telling me the truth about God or is it not? And the next thing that we see, play skillfully with a shout of joy. So it is always preferable to play skillfully. <laughs> okay? That's just the reality. So if you want to go at home, you know, and strum on your guitar and, you know, cats are screaming and all that kind of stuff, that's, that's between you, but you and, and the Lord. But when a person comes up onto the stage to lead us in worship, then it's very important that they play skillfully. Right? It's important that they have that ability. Hopefully, you know, I have a level of skill when it comes to instructing you in the word of God, because if I'm not skillful in doing this, then I need to be removed from this position. So it is whatever we do, we want to do skillfully. And when it comes to playing music for the Lord, that's, we want to play that skillfully as well. Verse four, for the word of the Lord is right and all his work is done in truth. Okay. So the word of the Lord is right. That word right there, it means straight, upright, correct. And then uh, where it says God's work is true, that word true means firm, steadfast, trustworthy. And so it's this idea that whatever God says and whatever God does are right. Okay, so this brings us back to the central issue of who's the boss. Because this is conviction for us. Oftentimes, as we move through the Psalms, we can look for the Psalms for encouragement, and that's great, right? But we also need to look to the Psalms uh, for exhortation, okay? And so one of the things for us to exhort ourselves here to be convicted of by the Spirit in verse 4 is will we trust God's words and his works? Do we trust that his words are true? And do we trust that his works are true, that his, his words are, tr- are right and that his works are true. Now, here's the thing. Many people in this world and even us for as believers, you know, at different times, we don't trust God's words and works. But here's the problem. We have to trust somebody's words and works. And so whose will it be? So if, if we say, I'm not going to trust the God of the Bible, I'm not going to trust what his word has to say, I'm not going to trust the works that he does, well, then whose am I going to trust? My own? Am I going to trust my words and my works? Am I going to trust the words and works of, of some talking head on TV or some best-selling novelist or whoever it may be? Because we're all going to trust somebody's words and works, whether it's us or someone else. And, and so when we put it in that it's God versus everyone else, then that puts it in stark contrast. And now we can make a, a, a right decision and to say, you know, like, like whenever in John 6, people started melting away from Jesus. And then Jesus said, are you guys going to leave too? And then Peter said, to whom shall we go? For we've come to believe that, you know, that you're the son of God and, and that, that you have the words of eternal life, that you're the one. So please, please, please seek to trust God's words and God's works. Don't go to someone else because inevitably when you and I move from God to somebody else, whoever it might be, whoever charismatic, however those things, it's always a step down. Okay. And there's no getting around this dilemma. If you're a believer, the Lord is going to bring this before you day after day after day. I experience this every day as a believer. This is what the Lord brings to me. Do you trust me? 
Do you trust what I say? Do you trust what I do? I, I haven't found that I've ever gotten past that, that that's what the Lord asks me every day. Do you trust me? And so this is the key, because if we don't trust God, we won't recognize him as our true boss. If we don't trust God, then we can't have that close relationship with him that he wants to have with us. Verse five says, he loves, the right, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. So, so here we see here that he loves righteousness and justice. And so what we're talking about here is the character of the Lord. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by what they love. You know, the kind of things that they're into. And so God loves righteousness. This word righteousness, it means right actions and right attitudes. So what does God want from us? Okay, what would he love to see in us? Right actions and right attitudes. Now those right actions and right attitudes, they can't just be mustered up by us but the Holy Spirit will empower us to have those right actions, to have those right attitudes. And it says that also he loves justice, and that really means a right legal decision. In other words, God likes things to be done rightly. You know, he, does, he talks all throughout scripture about don't, you know, treat the poor person badly just because they're poor. No, give them justice. And so it's important for us to understand this, that God loves righteousness. God loves justice. That's what he's into. He's not into iniquity. He's into the truth. And then we're told that the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. This is another one where I had to kind of take a moment and step back and think about it. Because again, as we look around at the earth, it seems like, well, the earth is full of badness. I mean, the scriptures tell us that the, you know, the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. And it's very easy for us to, to kind of put on our everything's bad glasses and see through that lens. But what does it mean by the scripture that tells us that the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord? Well, that word goodness is that, that Hebrew word for the faithful loving kindness of the Lord. That's what it means. So the, the application here that I kind of take away is that God's faithful love is available to anyone anywhere. And if you and I actually take a step back if we did a little project this week and said, I'm gonna for five minutes a day, just kind of practice solitude. I'm just gonna for five minutes a day, kind of just think about what God's doing in the world. And think about how faithful God has been to bring me every day through where I am today. Or how faithful God's been to kind of have the sun come up. How faithful God's been. So, so as we start to look and say, I'm gonna look through the lens of God's goodness, I start seeing God's goodness all over the place. And so it's important for us to understand that, that God's faithful love is available to anyone, anywhere. And if we would just look, if we would look around, we'd see that, man, how many friends has God given me over my life? How much money has he provided for me over my life? How much shelter? How many clothes? How many meals? All of these things. Now, it's interesting. I can't remember where it is in the scripture, but I think it goes like this. To the impure, everything is impure. And so what happens if, if we live in impurity and we live in fallenness, then we just see everything like that. And I witnessed this with some of my students. We're watching this movie that had like these great themes. And because my students were not practicing virtue, they weren't really about those things. They just scoffed at the whole movie. And it really upset me because I could see the virtue in this movie of redemption and forgiveness and all these things. And they were just like, Pfft. Because they weren't, they were, their kind of just normal walk is an impurity. And so they, they can't value those things. So you and I, if we, if we see everything as negative in this life, you know, there's a lot of negativity to see in this world for sure. But the problem is really on us. 
We're not seeing things with God's eyes. So God's faithful love is available to anyone and everyone, anytime. All right, let's look at verses six and seven. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He gathers up the deep in storehouses. Okay, so this is a reminder that God created all things by his word. And this is, this is familiar to us. Genesis chapter one, right? God created everything by his word. God spoke and it was. God said, let there be light and there was light. And so this is a reminder that God speaks everything by his word. And it's a reminder that that hasn't changed. That God can speak and things can change. That, that you can pray and God can speak and it's, it's different. And it's also a reminder here that God is sovereign over all creation. How he gathers up, you know, the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. That this world belongs to him. That, that it's, it's his property. Verses 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Okay. So all of humanity should fear the Lord because he is our creator. I mean, he made us. I imagine somehow if you had the ability and, you know, like, you know, remember Pinocchio, little Pinocchio. So you make little Pinocchio and Pinocchio comes to life and then P Pinocchio has no respect for you. Doesn't do anything, you know, tries to kill you in your sleep and all kinds of stuff. You're like, what's going on here? But like, you know, if, if we're honest, we're kind of like Pinocchio. We lie a lot. Our, thankfully, our noses don't grow. But um, that we're creations of God. God created us so we'd have fellowship with him. And so we should fear him. That fear is that, that reverent respect and that awe. But this also realization that, that he's my boss. And if he wants to take me out, he could. And so whatever God speaks happens. Now, imagine for just a moment what the world would look like if everyone truly feared the Lord. I mean, just think about it. Think about what one day would look like if everybody woke up to, tomorrow around the world and everybody feared the Lord. Just everybody just did what the Lord wanted. If the world isn't going to be worse. <laughs> the world is going to be infinitely better. Now, here's the key, though, as we think about this. We can't do anything about everyone. Okay, we can't do anything about everyone, but we can do something about someone. And that someone is you. You, that's what you can do. And, and so you can say, whatever this world says, I'm going to choose the fear of the Lord. I'm going to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to recognize who my boss is. And if they want to put me in the fiery furnace because I'm going to obey the Lord, great. But I'm going to fear him. I am going to fear the Lord. So often how you and I do life and how it's just on planet Earth is it's kind of like, well, you're not doing the right thing, so I'm not going to do the right thing. Well, I can't change you, so I'm just going to be mad. No. Just recognize other people have freedom and that the only person you can change is yourself. You can fear the Lord. All right, verses 10 through 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Now, verses 10 through 12 are, are worthy of much meditation, study. If you didn't read any scriptures this week, but verses 10 through 12 and just got them in your head, that would be time well spent. Okay. So I want, to, I want to point out three things. Number one, we see here, God destroys the plans and purposes of ungodly nations. So God does. He brings their plans to nothing. 
And so uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the, the Nazi Reich, you know, Hitler's um, government, they called themselves the Third Reich, that they were going to last for a thousand years. They did not last for a thousand years. They essentially, you know, came to prominence in the 30s and by the mid 40s, they were gone. And so it's important for us to understand that these these nations that rise up against God, God takes them down. He's done that in the past and he's going to continue to do that. So God destroys the plans and purposes of ungodly nations. Number two, we see here God's purposes cannot be thwarted. He will bring his plans to pass. Notice the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. You can't change God's plans and purposes. Can't undo them. You can't wreck them. Even if everybody on planet Earth got up tomorrow and said, we're going to go against God. It says the nations are a grasshopper in his sight. (laughs) That they're nothing compared to him. So please understand, God's purposes and plans cannot be thwarted. That means they can't be thwarted by you. They can't be thwarted by me. We're going to falter and we're going to fail. We're going to have good days and bad days. God's plan is not on our shoulders. If God depended upon us to get his plan instituted... He's a poor planner. (laughs) It's not going to work. So it's good for us to remember that. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. His plans will come to pass. Thirdly, the nation that chooses to submit to his purposes and plans will be blessed. That's what it says there in verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he's chosen as his own inheritance. From the the Old Testament standpoint, we understand that's the nation of Israel. Unfortunately, so often Israel didn't obey. But, But what we're told in the New Testament is that you and I as believers are that nation that God wants to bless. Let me give you the verses. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So you and I are blessed. We're this holy nation in Christ that God wants to use for his purposes. Verses 13 through 15, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from the place of his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. Okay, so from verses 13 and 14, the main thing I want to point out here is the Lord's omniscience. That means he knows all things. He sees all things. God sees each and every person. One of the kind of the struggles that Christians have so often is they feel lonely, right? Because even the person that you're closest to in this life can't truly know who you are inside completely. It's just impossible. You can't clearly communicate. But there is one who does know the Lord knows. The Lord knows exactly what you're feeling, exactly what you're thinking. The Lord knows all your problems and issues, and he still loves you. And so it's important for us to know that, that God sees every person. Hebrews 4.13 tells us, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So God sees everything. God looks down. He sees everyone uh, completely. And then verse 15, we're told that he fashions their hearts individually. Okay, this means that the, the Lord is at work in the lives of people. Okay, the Lord is at work in the lives of people. He is forming their hearts. He is fashioning them. And this is an application for us. You know, though God uses us in the lives of those around us, we are not the Holy Spirit. Okay, I would challenge you to go home, look at yourself in the mirror and say, 
I am not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Just do it. It sounds funny, but you know, how often do you and I want to be the Holy Spirit in people's lives? Dallas Willard talks about how he sees oftentimes parents, Christian parents, are the biggest obstacle to their kids growing in the Lord because they want to be the Holy Spirit in their kids' lives. They actually don't give space for the Holy Spirit to move. You know, as I look at my own life, my parents were a non-factor in me coming to faith. They weren't believers. The Lord was able to get a hold of me in his ways separate from my parents. Now, for you as a parent, yeah, obviously pray for your kids and love your kids and set a good example for your kids, but just realize you can't save your kids. No, the, no person has ever saved another person. If a person's saved, the Holy Spirit has to do it. And the, the Holy Spirit may use your agency. He may use the agency of another, but however it works, none of us are the Holy Spirit. The, the, the key to this is the only person who's the Holy Spirit in their lives is actually the Holy Spirit. <laughs> He's the only one. And so for us to trust in him and that he wants our loved ones saved more than we do, that he wants to move in people's lives more than we do, then we can just take a breath and say, Lord, would you just use me and however you want to use me? You're the boss. Just direct me. But don't don't ever think or put the pressure on yourself that you have to be the Holy Spirit in someone's life because you can't do it. Now, notice also in verse 15, it says he considers all their works. That word considers means understands. I like that. So God understands all the works of people. So, so, this, so we kind of think about this. Well, what's God doing with this? What's this God seeing people and working in people's lives and, and fashioning their hearts and, and understanding their works. What's the end goal? What is God the Father going for in all of this? He's seeking to conform us into the image of his son. Now, that's Romans eight twenty nine. I believe that's the key to life. God wants to conform us into the image of his son. And we look at that. And here's what we might go through. At first, it says, that looks awesome because I love Jesus. I want to I be like Jesus. And then we start through the process of becoming like Jesus. And then we're saying, it's not awesome. <laughs> Because the distance between Jesus and me is so great. It's so painful what he's taking me through that I don't know if I want this anymore. And then at that point, we must remind ourselves, well, why in the world does God want me to be like Jesus? Why would God the Father want to conform me into the image of his son? It's so that's, that's the only way that we can have the best possible relationship with him. You see, no one has had a better relationship with God the Father than God the Son. And so if God can, in his own way, conform us to the image of his son and the way he's made us to be, to be as much like Jesus as possible, then guess what? You and I just grow in intimacy with the Lord. The things that keep us from intimacy with God the Father are the things in our lives that are not like Jesus. And so as God conforms us to the image of his son, the purpose of it is to have the closest relationship possible. Then when you think about that as a parent and you think about, huh, if I could have the closest possible relationship with my child, would I want that? And if it were in my power to, to kind of work that out, would I go for that? And you would say, absolutely. Absolutely, I would do that. So would you think, any, you think the Lord's going to do any less? Do you think the Lord's not going to work in our lives to try to make us as much like his son as possible, knowing that that's the key to having intimate relationship with us? That's what God's going for. That's what he wants. And so... As flawed as I am, I know that I want the best for my children every day. That every single day, I want the best possible you know, life for my children. And so is it possible that I'm a better father than God the Father? 
Is it, is it possible that God the Father doesn't want the best possible thing for us every day? So please remember that as a believer, God is working everything together for your good. He wants the ultimate good, ultimate relationship with him. That's what he desires. All right, verses 16 and 17. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its strength. Here's the big idea. Trusting in earthly things instead of trusting the Lord will ultimately bring ruin. That's the idea. That's the idea of these two verses. Is if we trust in earthly things, it'll bring ruin. If we trust in the Lord, we're going to be all right. Because as you think about this, about these people with these powers, think about Alexander the Great. Think about Genghis Khan. Think about Julius Caesar. Think about Adolf Hitler. Think about Joseph Stalin. Think about Chairman Mao. Where are they right now? Well, they're in Hades awaiting the great white throne judgment. They trusted, right, in these armies and these kings and this intrigue and this murder and all of these things to build their kingdoms for a little bit of time. And now they're going to be separated from God for all eternity. And so the lesson for us is that nothing that man or the demonic can produce is capable of saving a person. Right? That's ultimately what these people want. They want this power and security and safety and we can rule. But only God can save and he only saves those who surrender to him. So the key is just the opposite of what the world teaches. The key is not, let me pile up. Let me secure myself. Let me build my fortress. Let me build my armies. No, no. God says, if you want to be saved, surrender. Surrender to me and I will save you. Verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. And so the Lord will attend to those who trust in him, to those who hope in his mercy. So the ones who hope in his mercy, those who trust in the Lord, then what's going to happen is God attends to them. God's going to move in their life. And, and so I want to remind you of, of a passage where Jesus talks about this. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 10 for just a moment? we will turn to Matthew chapter 10, verses 27 through 31. So Jesus here is talking to his apostles. He's kind of giving them instruction, talking about the persecutions that are going to come and how they're going to be mistreated, how there's going to be, um, you know, disharmony in their families because of this. And so what we have here, Matthew 10, verses 27 through 31, he says, What I very tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. In other words, whatever you hear from me directly, I need you to get it out there. Share the message, take it out there. And then he says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So again, this don't fear man. Man's not the boss. Okay, fear God, serve him. And then he says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very heads, the very hairs of your head are all numbered do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Okay? So he's saying, so Jesus is saying, this is a pretty radical thing, that in God's sovereignty, a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground unless God permits it to happen. It's radical. This is a radical thing. And then he says, and don't fear because you're of value than many sparrows. And then I, sometimes I wonder, I wonder how many sparrows I'm worth. You know, <laughs> what's, what's my value in sparrows? 
But as we, we look at this, what Jesus is communicating to us, if a sparrow can't fall to the ground, sparrow can't die apart from the Father's will, then you as a believer who worth many sparrows can't fall to the ground apart from your Father's will. You know, all your days are numbered before there are any of them. God's, God's got it under control. And so it's, it's comforting to say, I've trusted in God's mercy. I've trusted in his grace. No matter what happens to me, no matter when God permits me to fall to the ground, he can work it out because he's promised that because he's after my good. So if it's my good to die on such and such a day, way before I thought it was the day that I should die, it, it, God knows what he's doing. So it brings great comfort, great hope. Now, so remember, the Lord is able to keep us alive as long as he wants us here on earth. And when he wants to take us to heaven, he will do it. All right, let's turn back to Psalm 33 as we jump into verse 20. Verse 20 says, he guards, oh, sorry, wrong chapter. Verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And so here's a profession of trust, right? Waiting on the Lord to be provision and defender. Right? The Lord is going to provide for me and the Lord is going to defend me. Verse 21 says, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. So here it is. This brings us full circle to where we were at the beginning of the psalm that we're told clearly that trust in the Lord leads to rejoicing in him. Right. Notice again, he says, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we've trusted in his holy name. You trust first and then you rejoice. And so you continue, if you continue to grow in trust, and of course, trust leads to obedience, then rejoicing increases. So the lesson is, if you want to obey the command to rejoice in the Lord, then trust him more and trust him more. And then we trust him more by reading and believing and obeying. You read the word of God, you believe the word of God, you live out the word of God, you obey the word of God. And and so then what happens is that rejoicing increases. And so for, for every time that, that I've been a bad witness and not rejoicing, it's been nobody's fault but my own. It hasn't been the circumstances of this world. It hasn't been any of those things. It's been my failure to trust the Lord. And so for you and I, that's a great remedy because we can trust the Lord. Because if the Lord wants us to trust him, the Lord, and we say, Lord, I really want to trust you more. You know, I believe, help my unbelief. Then God says, well, come on in. <laughs> I'm going to help you grow. I'm going to help you trust me. I'm going to help you grow in relationship so that we might be closer. Verse 22, let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. This is very challenging here because what he's, the psalmist is essentially saying is that God's mercy upon us is in proportion to our hope in him, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. And so we say, like, God, I want more mercy from you. Well, then hope in me more. Hope in me more from your mercy. Hope in me. Trust in me. Get your eyes off of yourself onto me. And so if we want more mercy, let's hope more in him. All right, we'll stop there for today. But as we wrap up, I just want to remind you the clear message of the scriptures from beginning to end is that the Lord God is the boss. Now, for the unbeliever, that's a horrible thing to hear. For the believer, that's the best possible news. That's a good news that you have the ultimate good boss. No matter what boss you have to go face tomorrow, whether they're good or bad, you have the ultimate boss in your life who is good. And when we trust and submit to him as boss, we find out that he's much more than a boss, that he's a loving father. 
that he's a loving father who's created us, who only wants the absolute best for us today, tomorrow, and forever.